FX medicine is evolving. The same evidence-based research, ideas and thought-provoking conversations that you love in refreshed new formats. To help co-create it with us and for member rewards, sign up at fxmedicine.com.au. For now, enjoy this podcast previously recorded with Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line again today is Moira Bradfield. Moira is a naturopath and acupuncturist who's been in clinical practice for over, I think, 17 years now, graduating with a Bachelor of Naturopathy from Southern Cross University in 2001. Moira has worked as a naturopath in a variety of settings with a wide range of health conditions and disease states. In the pursuit of blending naturopathic medicine with oriental modalities, Moira completed a diploma in traditional Thai massage in 2004, and in 2010 completed a master's degree in acupuncture through, again, Southern Cross Uni. She now incorporates effective oriental protocols into her naturopathic practice. She's traveled to the United Kingdom, Thailand, and China as part of her clinical training and interests in oriental health. Moira blends this passion with a solid biochemical and pathological framework to create relevant and effective approaches to health and healing. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Moira. How are you going? Very well. It's a pleasure to be back. Today we're going to be talking about the estrobilome. Let's first go into a definition of this. What is the estrobilome? So if we break estrobilome down, which is what I like to get my students to do, and we look at the suffix of it, which is O-M-E or OM, which in molecular biology tells us that we're looking at the totality of some sort. So we're looking at the totality essentially of estrogen and estrogen metabolism with a focus on the um, microbiome essentially in the human body and how that's actually interacting with estrogen. So obviously we're talking about gut health here. We often overlook that. We tend to sort of compartmentalize the hormone as the hormone without regard for how we metabolize the hormone. Let's go through these major influences though. So what are the major influences on the estrobilome? So we're talking about, you're right, we're looking at gut health again and the many influences that microbiomes and their genetic or their gene components and what they actually code for and produce and then how they interact with the human organism and how the human organism is also feeding itself. So all of that will have flow-on effects into the interior of the body or the endogenous um, aspects of how we also metabolize and clear. So we're looking at the gut, we're looking at the liver and the enterohepatic recycle of estrogens, which has always been uh, an understanding that we've seen throughout the years in that there's uh, we know enterohepatic recycle of estrogen occurs. In fact, I remember teaching pharmacology many years ago and talking about the oral contraceptive pill and how enterohepatic is part of the equation of steady-state dosing with estrogen in contraceptives. So it's not that this is new knowledge, it's that actually we've developed now a more in-depth understanding of influences on the microbes, which have this set of enzymes um, which are 
well, there's a few of them, but the ones that are mostly focused on are the beta-glucuronidase and beta-glucosidase enzyme systems, which are involved in the deconjugation of estrogen at the gut level. And so there is obviously a lot of influences on how that might be occurring and which microbes express those enzymes more or less and what that actually might mean. So there's, um, from our understanding on estrogen and its metabolites, we know there are a lot of influences um, on a liver-based level and certainly these conjugates are coming from liver from phase two detoxification. So we're looking at that being obviously pumped back via bile back into the intestines and then being acted upon via microbes. And certainly we're looking at whether some of that ends up down the toilet or whether it's there and available to be reabsorbed. So when you're talking about beta-glucuronidase and beta-glucosidase systems, should the major impact be from our microbiota or is the major impact on dietary influences, or is it equal? I think that we can't really separate the two. So we know, obviously, that dietary influences uh, are varied in that we see expression of these enzymes influenced by a diet, by fibre content, by fat content, by protein content, and that those things, so for example, in a a vegetarian or a plant-based diet, we actually see a decreased expression of the beta-glucosidase and beta-glucuronidase and a higher fecal excretion of estrogen conjugates. So we're essentially clearing it from the system more effectively. And in higher fat and higher protein diets, we see the reverse of that. So we see a higher conversion or a higher deconjugation of these estrogen metabolites um, and less of that available in in the stool. And, And that certainly makes sense when we're looking at the role of fiber um, as a substrate for microbes to actually work on and also as a tool to improve diversity within the in the gut. So we see that in the microbe world, there is actually you know over 60 different types of um, genus-level bacteria that we can look at that have the ability to produce either both or one of those enzymes in varying circumstances. And not all of those are bad. Um, you certainly lactobacilli and bifido species, which we normally call the good guys, are, are in that um, category and have that propensity to be able to produce those particular enzymes. But it's about the diversity score, essentially, because once you start decreasing the diversity, which we know is there's a range of influences from um, exogenous and endogenous sources, as you start decreasing that diversity, you certainly have a higher expression a lot of the time of these enzyme systems, and you have less of the helpful things that we would consider um, involved in the clearance of them from the system, which is essentially binding them at the gut level and putting them down the toilet instead of allowing them to be taken and back up into the body in higher amounts and adding to that estrogen burden that we see. It's a very interesting point you make about um, how the foods that we eat are used as substrates for our bacteria, and obviously we need to diversify those. It offers a, a, another level of action on good old fibre rather than just the fibre as a physical entity binding to a hormone but itself being used as a substrate for a more active, if you like, um, production of of enzymes or controlling enzymes, which can help in hormone regulation. Definitely, and I think that's where we're getting to as our level of understanding um, increases in terms of microbe diversity in the gut, where we are aiming for a higher diversity uh, being associated with a state of health that we know that different fibre types, different, you know, a greater diversity of different types of 
plant foods is associated with greater influences on health. And I don't think we can separate the fibre component from the other phytochemicals that we see coming in when we look at a you know a good whole food plant based diet, um, because certainly the phytochemicals have a role as well. You know, in amongst that, when we look at a lot of those foods that are touted to be superfoods, so the green leafy vegetables, for example, and the bright colourful fruit, we see the ability to have um, calcium deglucurate as a component of those foods naturally occurring, which will also interact with those enzymes and inhibit particularly the beta-glucuronidase enzyme. So we've got natural things that come in and those foods are often packaged as well with the um, components that will influence both phase one and phase two liver detoxification. So again, we're looking at this totality of interaction from yeah. a food or a particular food um, source that influences health in a positive way. And when we start breaking it down to influences in a research level, which is often what you happen, um, you know, if we go back and look at things like breast cancer, you know, that they would associate obesity or they're associate alcohol alcohol or their associate, um, you know, protective or negative effects from different behaviours. Now with an increased understanding of the estrobolome, there's another depth of what might actually be going on and why that is a risk or why that is protective. And we also understand when we see quite quite counterintuitive things, you know, like the protective role, for example, of cigarette smoking, um, when we're looking at that in times of, you know, some estrogen cancers, whereas obviously it's a risk for other types of cancers in uh, in all people. So it's about what that actually might be doing to these microbes and their expression of these particular enzyme sets and how that influences estrogen. I also take the point that, as you said, commensals, uh, some commensals make beta-glucuronidase. Two things here, I guess one is the practicalities of good old keeping your bowels moving. The other the other point I, I sort of taken from a few things you've said before was um, we've spoken about estrobolome as if estrogen is is one entity and of course it's not. Can we just branch into the different types of estrogen and what their maybe their risk is or their importance in disease? Yeah, definitely. So we certainly have different types of estrogen at different stages of life as well. And if we take uh, a female as the example in that and granted males obviously carry estrogen but we often talk about it as being only related to um, to females yeah the, the main subset of clients that many people will see that we have estradiol which is e2 and that's predominant in non-pregnant um, people and definitely prior to menopause estrone e1 which is predominant after menopause and then estriol which is e3 and that's high during pregnancy and then we have the ability to interconvert some of those forms of estrogen, so certainly estradiol to E2 and estrone E1, interconvert to each other via phase one enzymes. And then via phase one and phase two detoxification, so we're talking about functionalization reactions via CYP enzymes and conjugation reactions via a substrate, we have then the further conversion of um, estrogens down into metabolites. And Many of the listeners may be familiar with, you know, or they learned at school, for example, that we have the two hydroxyestrogens and the four hydroxyestrogens and the 16 hydroxyestrogens, and, and they will be further converted into um, methyl or catechol forms of estrogens. But the reality is that we're talking about quite a long carbon um, molecule, you know, 18 carbons in a, an estrogen or an estrogen um, form, and that the the carboxylation, you know, can occur on any of 
the carbons on that molecule, and that's where our twos and fours and sixteens are coming. So there are yeah. ones and twos and threes and fours and fives and and so on, right up until seventeen. And in each of those categories, we have a range of metabolites, and our understanding of those is really unknown. You know, these things obviously being metabolites, we know when things go through detoxification reactions or through the liver that the fate of something is that it's either um, becomes less active or it becomes more active mm. and it depends upon what's acting on it and what else acts on it after that. And But the ultimate goal of those phases of our liver detoxification is to make something more water-soluble so that it can be excreted. Um, you know, that things are reaching, obviously, half-lives and are moving through and continue to do that on a daily basis as we produce and interact with different cells. Um, so excretion, obviously, is the end part of that metabolism pathway. And we also need to look at that in, in the sense of a naturopathic or a holistic perspective. Are people excreting and what pathway are they doing that from? You know, And, and these things being water-soluble, we have a variety, depending upon how um, water-soluble they are, whether they're coming through bile or sweat or, um, you know, lacking them out, spitting them out, spewing them out, weeing them out, mm. you know, the possibilities are endless, but they're all different types of metabolites. And we focus in on the two and the four and the 16 because there's a lot of research on uh, how they may actually be involved in disease and also being protective, particularly in relation to things like oncogenesis with breast cancer because of the fact that we associate, you know, the two form with being less or anti-proliferative and the four and the 16s as potentially being more proliferative in terms of their action and their ability to bind to and initiate cellular proliferation in different areas in the body where there are estrogen receptors. Yeah. And indeed, you know, moving on from there, when you're talking proliferation, we don't just have to be talking about a, a cancer. Um, we can indeed be talking about the influences on endometriosis, the influences on things like um, hemangiomas. I've seen really good results with that, strangely. I'm very interested also in the sort of estrogenic aspects of bowel cancer proliferation. So we tend to sort of compartmentalise it into a sex hormone or a sex organ type thing, and it can indeed be um, in, have influence on other organs as well. Can I just ask, though, you mentioned before about Cype enzymes, and obviously we're going to be talking a little bit. Um, we always will reflect on the genetic influences here on estrogen metabolism, and I guess I'm talking here about, you know, your Cype SNPs. How strong or relevant do you find they are, or do you just look at pathological testing or functional pathology? So they are relevant, whether you need to test them or not is entirely optional, I believe. So certainly we have the ability, if we're looking at estrogen metabolites, to test that. We also have the ability to look at uh, estrogen profiles and, and break it down into E1, E2, E3. And from that, you can sometimes work backwards. Certainly, the, you know, the age of genetic understanding does offer some aspects of personalized medicine. Um, but I, I also realize the drawbacks in that. So certainly if we are seeing higher amounts of the 2-hydroxy, our assumption then is that the CYP 1A1, 1A2 enzyme systems are working effectively. Or if we're seeing the 4-hydroxy forms, our CYP 1B1 or the 16s are CYP 3A4. And we also know that there are a variety of influences on those in terms of exogenous input, and, and that includes pharmaceuticals as well, how yeah. we may actually be inducing or inhibiting the expression of those enzymes. So you have to look at the totality of a case history. 
Um, I don't personally do a lot of genetic testing because I find that I feel overwhelmed very quickly. And then when I step back and look at it in a totality, it makes more sense for me. But there are influences even further downstream on a genetic level because certainly when we look at two and four hydroxyestrogens, they are further metabolized to relatively inert and possibly anti-carcinogenic compounds via COMPT. And we do know that methyltransferase does have variability as well and that there are underactive and overactive forms of that. Mm. Um, and so whether if that's underacting, then we've got a higher propensity for those two types of hydroxyestrogens to actually become free radicals and, and travel down um, a, a more oxidative damage pathway, which is a quinone-based pathway. So we actually, you know, if anything, COMPT is probably very important to look at if we've got information on the twos and the fours and we want to see what's actually happening because the the two methoxies, which is the next step when you've gone through the um, catecholamine methyltransferase, is, uh, you know, the twos and the fours are the next step. So understanding that level of variation in in SNPs is possibly advantageous to the practitioner as well. We've spoken about fibre having its action on inhibiting beta-glucuronidase and beta-glucosidase enzymes in breaking apart a conjugated oestrogen and therefore allowing the oestrogen to recirculate. Are there any sorts of things that you can give a person as an intervention that might override these uh, deconjugating enzymes? Yeah, definitely. I mean... Fibre, obviously, and food. I mean, there's so many beautiful foods that naturally contain um, these compounds, you know. And, and in fact, there's research that tells us if if we just have a diet that's 4% component of that, which is not hard to achieve when we look at the variety of plant-based foods that these, you know, components like calcium deglucurate and um, glucaric acid actually occur in, that we can achieve that and actually be influencing glucuronidase expression. And then we can look at that on a level of calcium deglucurate, um, which is can be working locally but also systemically. We have things like our DIM, which is a possibility as well to influence um, glucuronidase. Rosemary, if we're looking at therapeutics, will also inhibit beta-glucuronidase. So there's a variety of things that we already use and have used for a very long time for estrogen, um, relative estrogen, and dominant states that are now being found to have this action. The the interesting thing when we start looking at them, and, and granted a lot is mice studies, is that there is also some quite unpredictable things that go on with microbes as well with some of these things. Yeah. So if we take rosemary, for example, you know, it can actually affect some of those more beneficial microbes and decrease them because ah. on some levels it is an antimicrobial and then favour some more what we would consider to be pathogenic microbes and these in, uh, rat and mice and uh, ruminant studies that I've seen this actually occur. Yeah. But overall, if we're taking rosemary in you know, food and how we might prepare it and how we traditionally would include rosemary, which is with higher fat foods, which would be inducing beta-glucuronidase as well, then that inhibition is actually warranted in that circumstance. Or, um, you know, again, the other things that we sometimes shy away from, like grapefruit, which has um, neuringenin, which is, as we know, yep. is a um, lower or phase one detoxification, so it actually inhibits those CYP enzymes. But overall, it has limonene in it and it has fiber in it and it can also impact um, beta-glucuronidase. So these are all quite, you know, balancing effects overall if we are eating them 
in a whole food complex form, which is how I tend to address this. And then we have some more sort of specified targeting things where you can look at the balance between phase one and phase two detoxification and what might be influencing that and take away influences, particularly on glucuronidation and sulfation, because this is how we actually metabolize those estrogens in that uh, phase two detoxification. Obviously, there's a, the only caveat there with grapefruit is, A, get a good one, but B, um, be mindful of any medications that you might be on and, and take heed of any warnings that are present. Oh, definitely. Mm. Yes, because obviously inhibition is a problem when we're wanting to clear. I mean, it's, it could be a problem if that's all you were having as well on an estrogen level because you are completely going to change the how that's metabolized in the body and not necessarily in a favorable way in that you would end up with higher amounts of circulating estradiol and and estrone and they can obviously have um, potential health repercussions as well. So looking at ways that we could favor estrogen metabolism down to the two hydroxy forms and to the two methyl O um, forms, then those are the things that may have longer term outcomes. But we are essentially then decreasing active estrogen as well and that's not always suitable for everyone so this is still needs to be personalized medicine um, and granted this issue that you mentioned before that the the impact of estrogen obviously is not just on cell proliferation in oncogenesis that you know it does impact obviously uterine tissues and other tissues breast tissues and things like that in the body and we we need to consider that as well in that we can modulate and affect um, benefit, but we can also possibly push things too far if we're not considering the other levels of interaction that occur. And so sometimes if we're interfering with how something may be hydroxylated, we can actually induce, if we're not considering COMPT, we can induce things like anxiety, um, which obviously is not a great outcome for your client either. Not a great outcome. Now, you've mentioned fibre before. I think we need to delve a little bit further into that because you've got different types. You've got different, you know, the on the gross level, you've got soluble versus insoluble, but then you can also go on a micro level and talk about the different um, molecular le- um, lengths. Can we discuss that a little bit? Do you, do you favour one over the other? Um, sometimes I favour one over the other. If I have a snapshot of what might be going on with the microbiome. So if there's some sort of um, genomic information that I have, and then that would dictate to me what type of um, substrate or prebiotic fiber I might actually be using for the colonic bacteria in terms of you know, in- encouraging what's going on and, and changing ratios around that. But in an overall look at it, it, it for me, is purely about increasing the diversity of plant foods in somebody's life. You know, and because when we look at it and someone will sit down in front of me and say, oh, yeah, I eat vegetables and, the, and dietary recall then reveals that the vegetables are in their evening meal and consist of a cup overall and maybe a few spinach leaves at lunch underneath a piece of fish, then that's not necessarily for me the, the amount of vegetable nor fiber that I want in somebody's life. No. Um, so <laughs> all of those things, are, you know, insoluble, soluble and resistant are important in the interplay of what might be going on because we have them being substrate and fuels and, the, you know, inducing obviously short-chain fatty acid production and, and butyric acid and all of those beautiful things that we find to be preventative 
um, for some types of issues in health. And we also are requiring, if we're looking at things like calcium deglucurate and also um, indole-3-carbonyls, which we find in those cruciferous and brassiaceae family, that there has to be a certain level of acidity for them to be able to convert as well. So we want to encourage healthy short-chain fatty acid production, healthy digestive processes so that we can optimize any therapy, whether it be supplemental or dietary, that we're putting in play for that particular person. You've previously mentioned DIM, methane, and you've just mentioned indole-3-carbonyl. Can you give our listeners a rundown on how they're similar, how they're different, and what are the issues facing these two uh, nutriments, and particularly in supplemental form? Yeah, so indole-3-carbonyl is produced by members of the cruciferous family. So we're looking certainly at cabbages, radishes, cauliflowers, broccolis, Brussels sprouts, daikon radishes, all of those beautiful things that we want our clients to be eating anyway. And many of those have the calcium deglucurate that we also want to be supplying and can affect directly aspects of phase one and phase two liver detoxification. So all round fantastic foods to be including. And if we focus on indole-3-carbonyl, so this is an isothiocyanate, so it's a sulfur-containing molecule within our cruciferous family, and that's a lot of them. That's what they're known for. And its conversion under acidic um, conditions is to DIM. And so there's a lot of research on both of those compounds. And when we look at the research surrounding indole-3-carbonyl, which is varied from everything to do with androgens to specifically estrogens, uh, cancer risk, we have an understanding that some of the benefit that we're seeing in those research when they're looking at I3C is actually because it's converting to DIM. So on a clinical level for me, if I was choosing between the two, I actually want the one that I know is going to work more specifically. So I go towards DIM as well. I certainly have an understanding I'm going to be increasing the indole-3-carbonyl on a dietary level Mm. and therefore the body will be able to pick and choose where it sends it down its pathway of metabolism. But I want the DIM in circulation to have those quite specific aspects and action on the estrogen conversion pathways and, you know, interrupting depending upon the client and what they're actually coming in for, whether we're looking at, you know, oncogenesis and cell cycles and how that might actually intervene because, you know, the more you go through that research, the more we realise that they actually are talking about DIM even though they're labelling it or calling it I3C at the beginning. I Mm. mean, there is always a conversion and there are other metabolites granted from that starter compound and certainly we can't overlook the fact that they may be having actions that we're not aware of as well. But in terms of the anti-estrogenic effects and the the interventions at the estrogen receptors and how those signals are transducing, for me that is more to do with DIM. And therefore if I'm trying to influence what's going on with hydroxylation pathways um, via those CYP enzymes, then I would go down a DIM pathway. What about things like um, broccoli sprout extract though? Do you find that it can have a major effect clinically on estrogen balance or estrogen issues with your patients? Personally, not a major effect. So I have had clients where we've done DIM and then we're moving into, say, a conception phase. And for me, I don't necessarily want something in play that I'm going to have to drop if conception is has occurred. Um, so I would want a much more 
you know, subtle regulation of hormones. So I will use broccoli sprout extract in that way. Um, I, it has an effect, granted it has an effect as, you know, because we're looking at a, a more concentrated form of these vegetables. Uh, but it, it doesn't seem to influence those ratios in quite an extreme way or we're looking at over time. But if you are playing and manipulating on multiple parameters, then certainly broccoli sprout extract is a, a valid intervention. But I would want to be looking at what else is going on, what else is influencing uh, the functionalization reactions, but also the conjugation reactions, and certainly making sure that these people are pooing regularly, mm. that fiber is adequate, that we've got bile being bound and, and put down the toilet, not being allowed to sit you know, and have that opportunity to be acted upon by microbes so that it's reabsorbed. One last point I just forgot to add about um, the use of DIM and I3C is if one prefers I3C, indeed, indeed I would say do it for both. If you're using either of these in a supplemental form, then um, you really should be looking at doing a baseline test of um, estrogen metabolites and also a treatment test, say, three or four months later, and make sure that that test includes the four, four series of hydroxyestrogens um, so that you can show a shift. And whatever you're using, if you can't show a shift, why are you doing, you know, why are you um, using that treatment? That's right. I mean, I do some testing in clinic and I definitely test metabolites. That's one of the things I will do if I implement a treatment, then we're looking at that. And then we will retest as well as we start. I mean, my whole precept in clinic is not to have people on supplements forever. Yes. So there has to be enough lifestyle and modification in play that I can move somebody away from a supplement basis. And again, that would be part of a retest. Are our ratios moving? What is it that you're doing that's you know, not compliant because we have other inducers. You know, certainly alcohol yeah. um, is a huge inducer. Non-steroidal um, anti-inflammatory drugs will, will affect sulfation. Food dyes will affect sulfation. Um, deficiencies of cofactors, molybdenum, for example, will affect um, sulfation. If people are using aspirin on a regular basis, we're affecting glucuronidation. So we have to make sure that those things are controlled for as well. We're hopefully moving to an optimal place of health um, rather than, you know, just using supplements, not changing lifestyle, particularly in this case, you know, what sort of xenoestrogen influences have we got coming in? What type of level on the body level is not clearing and metabolizing effectively and why? And how do we actually address that? And also things like sleep and not just how it affects your body per se, but also how it affects your microbiota. Um, and the last one, of course, is exercise, good old exercise. Do you practically tend to concentrate more on the dietary influences, the bowel moving properly, making sure that they're drinking enough water and all of these really basic lifestyle things that we all should be doing before you go gung-ho with liver herbs and dump a whole lot of bile out into the into the bowel and potentially overwhelm the ability of the fibre to conjugate that. How do you practically intervene here and what does it, what does it show up as in your patients? Yes, I do now. Um, I, I think probably in my younger years I would use uh, herbal medicine that would be stimulating bowel flow without actually considering bowel elimination, but now that's the primary thing. You know, people need to be having a daily bowel movement. It needs to be the remnants of 
yesterday's food that are in that bowel movement, not last week's. Um, and we need to make sure that they are clearing because transit time will affect what happens with those bile acids, whether they become secondary bile acids, whether they're reabsorbed, deconjugated, you know, and we certainly know that that will also change microbiome diversity and that will favor bile acid resistant microbes and their influence on health and, you know, uh, digestive symptoms like IBS is quite huge and um, even things like the presentation of SIBO, which we probably Uh. need to talk about soon. Um, you know, so for me, I think that the going back to basics and making sure people are eliminating through their elimination pathways is the basis of estrogen and dealing with estrogen on this level. And then the flow-on effects of that are that your microbiome should actually be able to adjust to that and express itself in a way where the beta-glucuronidase activity is sufficient because even if you have a a eubiosis, if you had a a gut that is balanced and considered to be diverse, you have the enzyme production by these microbes. But if you're not clearing your bowels effectively, then you're always going to deconjugate. Mm. It just depends on to what level. And certainly we know if you're not clearing your bowels, then you're actually going to shift towards dysbiosis. You know, and there's some interesting um, research out there looking at beta-glucuronidase inhibition with antibiotics and you know you read it and you go oh that's great you know antibiotics do inhibit beta-glucuronidase yeah they do because they're wiping out your microbes Mm, and then but the longer you use that antibiotic the more you'll shift towards the dysbiosis and the higher your beta-glucuronidase expression will be via the dysbiotic microbes because we lose the diversity which means we lose the balance between the producers and the non-producers and then we team that with a dysbiosis with a motility issue and we increase the equation more so where we've got bile hanging around for longer. So, yeah, it's a primary thing. Get these people pooing. What other sort of um, resources or educational materials or even papers can you direct listeners to where they can learn more about these important topics? There are some um, papers that we'll make available. So even though the strobilome seems to be a new concept, as I said, when you go back through the research, there is over 20 years worth of information that points us in that direction. Mm. Within the last five years, we've probably got some more papers coming out with the catchphrase in it, which is a strobilome. And and there's certainly a lot now looking at the influence of that on breast cancer. So there's some great breast cancer research papers out there with information. And it brings into... Good perspective, I think, as well, because we have this black and white thing where the twos are great and the fours are, you know, not great and the sixteens are even less great. But it talks about the fact that the twos and the fours can actually play inverse roles depending upon the situation. And again, that for me speaks of the need to have oh, yeah. that person sitting in front of you assessed. So uh, I will provide the links for those when on the web page. And we will, of course, put these up on the FX Medicine web page for our listeners. Uh, and if people have any questions or indeed any controversies that they're coming up against, please contact us on the FX Medicine social platforms. Moira Bradfield, thank you so much once again for joining us on FX Medicine. I love listening to you. I love the way that you are. You always have like a patient that you're thinking of in front of you and you're always cognizant of what's happening with them on a human level, not just a biochemical level. You're very mindful of their lifestyle and their uh, um, you know, affordability of supplements and you take into account the, their totality when you're treating them. I love it about you. That's why I admire you so much. Thank you for joining us on FX Medicine today. Thanks for having me once again. It was a real joy. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook.
NATX 2021 has ended, but you can still get access to all of the recorded trainings and presentations through the NATX Bundle or Natrepreneur Library. Gain instant access to the Natrepreneur resources, courses, trainings, meditations and recordings that will inspire, motivate and teach you to leverage your unique skills, master your mindset and grow your business as a practitioner. Find out more and get access by visiting tamiguest.com slash experience.